Mindfulness is really about understanding how our mind is working, seeing how we are habitually perpetuating unhealthy habits, and also seeing where we could potentially perpetuate healthy habits. Mindfulness training and meditation being part of how we can do that helps us provide this anchor point where we can start to see our minds in motion. We can do that in formal meditation, or we can even do that in the moment. Just providing that anchor point of being curious, like, oh, am I stuck in a habit loop right now? So here I see meditation and mindfulness as helping us see the patterns of our mind. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. My guest today is psychiatrist, author, and contemplative researcher Judd Brewer. Judd is one of the leading figures in the use of mindfulness for addiction and anxiety, and his work emphasizes the brain's habit cycle and how to change it. He's also developed a number of research-backed smartphone apps to help deliver these contemplative interventions outside of the clinic. Our conversation starts with the story of his own use of meditation to relieve stress in medical school and how that led to a career in meditation research. And Judd reflects on some of the shortcomings in traditional medical approaches to addiction. For example, the idea of using willpower to just quit. Then we get into the world of habits, talking about the pros and cons of the brain's habit mechanisms and the key role of awareness in changing habits. Judd explores commonalities between Buddhist philosophy and modern psychology, and that gets us into the details of the basic habit loop. We talk about seeing anxiety as a habit and the role of mindfulness for habit change. Judd also discusses some of his research on the effectiveness of the app-based interventions that he's developed, and he reflects on next steps for digital therapeutics. We wrap up with some insights on communicating science to the public, and Judd shares a take-home message about the power of kindness and connection as the ultimate reward. I really appreciate how Judd makes these insights from the intersection of neuroscience, psychology, and Buddhism accessible to the public. He did a pretty amazing job during the pandemic, making resources available to folks to help with anxiety. You can find links for a lot of his work in the show notes, including some great short videos that explain the core concepts of how he approaches habit change. Judd's view of habits as underlying so many of our behaviors and thoughts, both good and bad, really resonates with me. And as you'll hear, the implications of this perspective filter all the way up to the societal level. Whether you or someone you love is struggling with addiction, or you'd just like to work on changing a habit that isn't helpful to you, I think you'll find a lot of valuable information in this episode. Okay, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It's my pleasure to share with you Judd Brewer. Well, welcome, Judd Brewer. It's so great to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's so much I want to talk to you about, and we probably won't be able to get through it all. But I would really love to start with a little bit of your personal story. So can you share how you got interested in meditation to begin with and this whole kind of work? I'd be happy to. It was probably the summer before I started medical school. I was uh, having a stressful time. Uh, and my first day of medical school, I started meditating, figuring it was you know, starting a new chapter in my life. And I thought I would add 
what I thought would just be maybe an appendix or a subsection of a small chapter. And then, you know, lo and behold, what, 25 right. years later, it's it was like the the major driving chapter of my life. So yeah, I started, you know, started meditating and I never had any idea about how little I knew about my own mind. Right. And I was thinking, you know, I just meditate during boring medical school lectures or whatever, because <laughs> it would at least pass the time found that it was really helpful, you know, for helping me uh, be less stressed. And also it started helping me see a lot of the gaps that I had. And even I would say, looking back, that the medical profession had around, you know, how the mind works, especially when it relates to addictions. Uh, so it was interesting to see that that kind of set me up, you know, I'd meditated for probably about eight years or so, not ever thinking I would ever study it. But as I finished my PhD and finished my medical school, I started to see, especially when I was interviewing patients who were struggling with addictions, that they were actually using some of the same language that I was learning in my mm. own meditation and Buddhist study of, you know, Buddhist psychology. And it, you know, it really struck me. I was thinking this cannot be a coincidence. And that led me down this whole path of studying it, both uh, not, you know, extending my personal study into professional and even into my clinical treatments. So what are some of those gaps that you were mentioning in the way we think about the mind or the way the medical profession thinks about the mind? Yeah. And I don't want to make this sound like the medical profession had no clue, but... You know, it's amazing how, you know, I don't know where this started with maybe it was Descartes or something where there was this real privileging of thinking and reasoning, you know, and willpower. And that's really been pervasive for hundreds of years where, you know, it's just like think your way out of anxiety. So I saw this in, in medical school. I learned, you know, to help my patients quit smoking, just give them a quit date and tell them to basically tell them to stop, you know, give them some medication to help with the withdrawal symptoms. But the the main, you know, psychological approach was, you know, advise them when they fall down and advise them that they are going to relapse and advise them that this is going to be a problem and basically just say, just do it, you know, just, mm. <laughs> just stop. And same with you know, basically all other addictions. It's, you know, we, I certainly learned about like 12 steps and things like that, which are really helpful for people. Yeah. Yet one of the things that they suggest is not taking a willpower-based approach, right? You know, one of the, the tenets of AA is around being powerless. Right. So here, I see this as a fundamental difference. Uh, some might call it a gap. And modern day approaches toward addictions and even habit change more generally. Mm -hmm. You know, another example was that, you know, as a as a psychiatrist, I was really struggling with helping my patients with anxiety. And if you look at the best medications out there, the number needed to treat is 5.2, meaning that I have to treat five patients before one of them shows a significant reduction in symptoms. Mm. So I was basically playing the medication lottery there. And struggling, you know, I don't know who's going to benefit and what I'm going to do with the other four out of five people that you know, continue to struggle. And so there I hadn't even learned in medical school or residency that anxiety could be driven like a habit. And so that was a big aha for me. And that started to link in both with the Buddhist psychology, 
but also with some of the other habit change research that my lab had been doing around mindfulness, helping people with, you know, quitting smoking and, and not overeating and things like that. Yeah. So let's get into some more of this about habits, because I love how you frame all of the, the issues that you approach kind of coming out of that process of the way our mind forms habits, which is so foundational, right, to the way that we operate for better or worse. You know, it can have good and, and bad outcomes. So um, can you talk a little bit about the basics of kind of habit formation and um, maybe even how that links up with Buddhist psychology? Because I know you've thought a lot about that, too. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, you know, all of us, you know, if I had to guess, it's probably 95 or more percent of our waking life is habit driven. And probably 95 percent of that is helpful, you know, where if we had to relearn how to walk, how to put on our clothes, how to eat, you know, we'd you know, it, it, we'd be exhausted by breakfast. So, <laughs> yeah. so it'd be really challenging if we had to relearn everything every day. So the first thing that I want to highlight, because often people think, oh, habits, bad habits, but it's really habits are generally good. And there are a few pesky ones that kind of get in the way. <laughs> Those are but, the ones we notice. <laughs> yes, yes. But the process is set up really for survival. You know, as humans, before we had refrigerators and ways of storing food, we had to go out and find food and then remember where it was so we could go find it again. And we also had to remember where danger was in, in the process of finding the food so we could avoid that. And those two processes are, you know, in modern day, we talk about those in terms of positive and negative reinforcement. But those are that's just, you know, scientific terms for, you know, we learn to approach things, you know, remember where things that are helpful are so that we can do them again. And we learn where unhelpful things are and we so we can avoid them. You know, that's that's basic positive and negative reinforcement. And so that's in modern day was described well and and probably the best known person uh, to do research on this was, you know, BF Skinner, but that was mm -hmm. you know, these processes were described back in the 1800s and in fact, if you look back at the ancient Buddhist psychology, they were described before paper was even invented. So that's where, you know, I got really interested in, you know, when I was starting to look at these processes, when I was trying to figure out ways to help people, you know, with their habits, whether it was smoking or, or anything else, and then linking that up with my own personal practice and my own, I want to say understanding, but it was really my challenges with understanding some of the Buddhist psychology, because some of it can be pretty complex. Mm -hmm. So for example, there's this process that's called dependent origination. So these these 12 links of dependent origination that are, you know, links and they're kind of more of a web, but and but you, they're taught in a kind of a linear fashion just to help people understand them a little bit more, et cetera. And this process is said to be what the Buddha was contemplating the night of his enlightenment. So I say that because that indicates that this is kind of important, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And when I, I did some work with Jake Davis, uh, who's a, a poly scholar uh, and a philosopher, and we looked at these links of dependent origination and looked at modern day psychological processes around reinforcement learning. And it, and it turns out that these two are basically talking about exactly the same thing. So just different language, uh, you know, the modern day doesn't go through, it doesn't have 12 links. It's, you know, it's a little more simplified. Uh, and we even published a, a paper on this a while ago showing that these are basically the same thing. So that the Buddhist psychology was describing reinforcement learning thousands of years ago. 
And they it was not only describing it, but it was saying, hey, this is the key to enlightenment. If somebody believes, you know, in the process of enlightenment or awakening, you know, they might study it that way, but it it's also just as pragmatic as somebody trying to break a bad habit. You know, they're saying, mm-hmm. you know, the habit of self is problematic. It causes suffering. And in modern day, we say, you know, the habit of being attached to anything like smoking or overeating or even worrying causes suffering. And both of those can be approached the same way using awareness. Mm. And with the underlying problem being the attachment part, is that the similarity across all those? Well, I would say that's one of the similarities. Another is, you know, in the first link, independent origination is described as ignorance. Mm -hmm. And so in modern day, we think of that as subjective bias, where we're biased based on our previous experience and we don't even know it. So we're kind of ignorant to that bias. So we might see the world through certain lenses just based on our conditioning ranging from somebody preferring one type of chocolate over another, they might have a chocolate bias, Mm -hmm. to implicit racial bias, where we can become conditioned societally, uh, just based on on societal behaviors and, and conditions. You mentioned awareness as kind of the key to to shifting this. Um, do you want to say more about how that works to shift the cycle? Sure. So here, none of this is, I want to say, is this is just me kind of pointing out things that other people have pointed out before. You know, so this isn't like I'm coming up with some new theory. It's just been a very fun process over the last couple of decades to bring together. It's like, oh, the, you know, the Buddhists talked about this. Oh, the psychologists talked about this. Wait a minute. Let's bring these together and see if they're, these puzzle pieces fit. Oh, they do. Oh, wow. They're, they're the same thing. So I just want to highlight that, that, you know, what I'm, what I'm going to talk about is just stuff that, <laughs> that other people have already, you know, have already done. And it's just a matter of, of linking them and then also doing the studies to see if they're actually true. So in modern day, you know, we can do a bunch of experiments to see if these theories and if these psychological mechanisms are indeed true. So I mention awareness because, you know, and it's also interesting, I'll say that the more research I do, the simpler the answer actually gets, which I I think in science is probably a good sign. That's you know, a good sign. Yeah, yeah. This idea of parsimony, the simplest explanation is usually the right one. And the more we have to add asterisks and footnotes, the more we're probably missing something. Right. So it's been really gratifying to see, you know, these things simplify and simplify and simplify. So I would go as far as saying, for me, at least right now, it's simplified all the way to the level of awareness, 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 awareness. And by that, I say this and actually wrote about this three-step process for changing habits um, in, in my Unwinding Anxiety book using anxiety as an anchor, but it just kind of highlights how we can do this with any habit. The first step is to bring awareness to our own habit loops. So seeing where we're caught in habitual 
behaviors, whether they're mental or physical. And this is really very much a way of describing what the psychologists were saying was like, you know, contemplate dependent origination and as a way to kind of see where your ignorance is and see how you're caught up in, in your own uh, identifications, your own habit loops. So as a concrete example, when I have a patient that comes into my office for an intake and I, you know, first get to know them and they start describing whatever the problem is, then I will be listening through that lens of dependent origination. Like, okay, what, what's the behavior? So uh, to be concrete, let's um, just use an example of a patient with anxiety. For example, I can think of a bunch of my patients who come in, they get referred for anxiety. I'm thinking of one, there's a gentleman who is about 40 years of age when he was referred to me. Uh, he walks in the door, he was actually, he looked pretty anxious, right? So that mm -hmm. was that was pretty straightforward, but he was describing how he would get panic attacks based on uh, driving on the highway. So you drive on the highway, he'd feel like he was gonna get in a car accident and then he would have a panic attack to the point where he avoided driving on the highway. And so the first thing we did in that, you know, in that intake was to just map out his habit loops around panic. And just amount, it took us 30 seconds. Right? I pulled out a blank piece of paper and I said, okay, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? And that th those three elements, uh, they've been very nicely described. Charles Duhigg wrote a book about a decade ago called The Power of Habit, where he kind of made these this process of reinforcement learning very simple for people to understand. Really well-written book. And, you know, he talks about a cue. I think he talks about maybe there are four steps in his book. I don't remember exactly. But the basic elements for any habit to form are a, a cue, a behavior, and a result, or a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So, for example, with my patient, his cue or his trigger would be that he would have a thought, like, I'm going to get in a car accident. His behavior became an avoidant behavior, where he would avoid driving on the highway. And then the result was that he could avoid having panic attacks. So there was that reward. That was the benefit. Yeah, yeah. So that's where his brain had said, oh, you know, do that again so that you don't have to have more panic attacks. So that's really where awareness comes in as a first step, is we've got to be aware of how our mind is working. You know, if we don't know how our mind works, we can't work with it. And that's something that any of us can do basically for any type of behavior. We can check to see, you know, what am I, what am I identified with? What's the behavior? And what's the result of the behavior? That also sets us up for the second step, which also is based on awareness. So in, in Buddhist psychology, they talk about cause and effect being really critical. You know, it's the basis of karma. It's, you know, it's all this stuff. And why is that important for them? And why is that important now? Well, cause and effect is basically the basis for reinforcement learning. I see this all the time in my clinic. A lot of people think, oh, if I can just figure out what triggered my anxiety or triggered my worrying, then I can just avoid those things and I'll be fine. Mm. But that's not how our brains work. You know, our brains work, they will reinforce a behavior based on how rewarding it is, right? That's why it's called reinforcement or reward-based learning. The triggers or the cues are actually the least important part of the equation. And that's good to know because often we don't know what triggers a behavior. And we also can't avoid most of life, right. <laughs> which can be triggering. <laughs> right. So even dropping ourselves onto a desert island, you know, who knows, maybe coconuts would trigger us at some point, right? <laughs> so it's not about the triggers. It's really about the cause and effect relationship. 
And this is where it's really nice to see that the Buddhists and the modern psychologists completely agree again. You know, it's like, oh, cause and effect. And by that, if we look at the modern day science, there, there's this uh, formula called this Rescorla-Wagner reinforcement learning model. So these two researchers back in the 70s came up with this very simple formula that is still at play today, which basically says, hey, you're going to reinforce a behavior based on how rewarding it is. And you're going to keep doing it or you're going to change that behavior based on one thing, which is awareness. And by that, I mean, if you pay attention to the behavior, you're going to see just how rewarding it is right now. And once you lay down that reward value, you can kind of set that as a habit and then you don't have to worry about it. You can not pay as much attention. You just do it as a habit. That's what habits are all about. So I think of it as set and forget. You set the reward value. You forget about the details. As an example, you know, we probably learned the reward value of chocolate cakes sometime. Well, it's probably starts at the, all the birthday parties we go to as kids. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that gets laid down with the fun and the presents and the ice cream and, you know, the roller skating or whatever. That's what, you know, we had roller skating parties when I was yeah. a kid. <laughs> so, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. So we we laid on that reward value and then our brain you know we see some cake when we're not a kid anymore and our brain's like oh cake good right and then so it's mm -hmm. like go eat the cake mm -hmm. yet we could probably eat cake for breakfast lunch and dinner when we were a kid well i certainly can't eat cake for breakfast lunch and dinner anymore yeah. uh, i get i get a sugar rush and i crash you know that it's it is not good for anyone yet if i had the habit of eating cake the only way to kind of update that reward value is to pay attention. Like, what do I get? What's the cause and effect of, of eating cake? And the, the terms might sound complex, but it's actually relatively simple. So if we have stored the reward value of cake, for example, in our brain, and let's say a new bakery opens up in my neighborhood. And so if I go in the bakery, I don't know if their cake's any good. But I, I get a piece of cake, I eat it, and let's say it is the most delicious piece of cake I've ever had, right? <laughs> yeah. My, my brain gives me, Rescorla and Wagner would call this a positive prediction error. I predicted that it would be pretty good, but it was better than expected. And what that does is helps me learn, oh, good bakery, go get this cake again. Mm -hmm. I've got one of those around the corner. <laughs> oh, perfect, perfect. <laughs> so if on the other hand, uh, a new bakery opened up and... You know, I went and ate the cake and I was like, meh, I've had better. I would get this negative prediction error where my brain would say it's less than expected. And I learned from that as well. Like, don't go back there. Right. right. So this is all set up to help us learn. Right. Oh, learn, you know, go to that bakery, eat that, you know, amount of cake or whatever. But if I don't pay attention, you know, let's say I ate the cake and I was on the phone and then I came home and my wife was like, hey, how's the new bakery? And I, I would have to say. I don't know, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, it couldn't have been great or I'd remember it because it would probably wake me up and be like, wow, hey, I have to get off the phone. This is really good. And it couldn't have been terrible because I would be like, I'd, I'd remember that as well. But it's really critical that we pay attention because these subtle effects are not going to be seen and they're not going to be registered in our brain unless we pay attention. Yet that is really, really, really critical for changing any behavior. Uh, I'll give you a couple of concrete examples. So, you know, my lab has done work with smoking cessation, for example. And what we do is we tell people to smoke, which seems kind of counterintuitive, and especially as a clinician. If I'm doing that in my clinic and telling my patients to smoke, they're like, is that malpractice? 
Yeah. But I, I know that the only way to get them to quit smoking is not through willpower because they've all come in and tried that before. Right. You know, it'd be great if I could just tell them to quit smoking. It'd be one visit and we'd be done. Yeah. Do, are, what are the rates of that, of just like just trying? Because I know it doesn't it's not very effective. Do you know, is there data on? Yeah, it's not. You know, it's interesting because I just read a paper on eating if somebody's trying to lose weight. And it's remarkable that these are basically the same. So it's about 5% of somebody, you know, just goes and tries to quit smoking. The likelihood that they're going to stay quit is about 5%. And the same is true if somebody uh, goes on a, you know, on a calorie restriction diet, the likelihood that they're going to have kept that weight off in a year is about 5%. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I found that really fast. I was like, no way. It's... Which basically Same says, process, yeah. yeah, yeah, it probably says that about 5% of us are are, Vul- are like Mr. Spock, you know, like Vulcans, who can <laughs> right. be like, you know, just turn that off, just stop doing it, you know, you right. know it's logical to eat fewer calories. <laughs> but that doesn't work for the majority of us, you know, from a public health perspective, 5% is not a very good uh, hit rate. Yeah. So here we can instead really just pay attention. So I have my patients pay attention as they smoke a cigarette. I remember one guy, he'd been smoking for 40 years. So the first thing we did, you know, in that first step was to map out his habit loop around smoking and then calculate the number of times he'd reinforced it. It was close to 300,000 times. Wow. It was like 293,000 or something like that, roughly, where just smoking a pack a day, if somebody smokes 20 cigarettes for 40 years, that's a lot of repetition. So he comes back and he says, how did I not notice that? And he was referring to how crappy cigarettes taste. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, I've been smoking all this time and I never noticed. So that's putting that Rescorla Wagner model into practice where you simply pay attention. You realize the cigarettes taste like crap and you start to become disenchanted. Mm. So is for any like uh, negative habit that we're trying to break, mm-hmm. I guess the point of the awareness then is to become more aware of the negative outcomes. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're trying to reduce the road because I'm thinking of some things that, well, they actually are pretty delicious or, you know, yeah. it's harder to find the downside. Yeah. So let well, we can go there in a, in a second because yeah. I think that's really important. You know, when I first started studying smoking cessation, I was taught that of, of the addiction, smoking is actually one of the hardest, if not the hardest addiction to quit. Mm. You know, you're not going to lose your job if you smoke. You, right. You're not, you know, you can smoke throughout the day, whereas you can't drink throughout the day and operate heavy machinery. You know, there are lots of things with other addictions where it's just really hard to keep doing it. And a lot of my patients say that smoking is their last addiction because they've, you know, they quit heroin, they've quit drinking, they've done all these other things, but largely because they've hit rock bottom. You know, they've been fired, they've had family issues, but smoking is more of an annoyance in the immediate sense as compared to you operate heavy machinery in an unsafe manner. Right. It doesn't ruin your life now, but yeah. the health outcomes yeah. later. Yeah. So here with smoking, it's, you know, you don't have to smoke to survive. But I think as you're pointing out, eating might be a, a different issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can pay attention. And it, it's also interesting that the Buddhist psychology, if you look at in the Pali Canon, they describe this as well. You know, just to summarize they talk about exploring gratification to its end. If I remember a quote correctly, it's kind of like, it wasn't until I explored gratification to its end, this is the Buddha speaking, that knowledge and vision arose. And he was talking about his awakening. Mm. And the idea is, if Rescorla and Wagner were reading the Pali Canon, they'd be like, oh, that's what we're talking about. You know, it's like, pay attention and see if an unhelpful habit, how unhelpful it is. 
and you start to become disenchanted. And that's so the Buddha was talking about disenchantment. Riscola and Wagner were talking about disenchantment. And in my clinic, I'm seeing people become disenchanted. Very different than telling themselves that they should quit smoking. Right. So how about something like eating, right? Because we have to eat to survive. So here you can apply the same process. And I think of it as finding that pleasure plateau, right? So our body, if we're short on calories in any one day, our body's going to say, hey, you know, give me some calories. And so we might eat some, let's say, eat some pizza or eat some cake. Yet for many people, they don't pay attention to how much they eat. So with pizza, for example, uh, on the East Coast, New York style pizza, a lot of people love New York style pizza. It's very addictive, right? The carbohydrates, the fat, you know, it's just like a perfect combination. And so often people will eat beyond society. They'll eat beyond when they're full. And so here we can apply the same principles, explore gratification to its end, where I have people pay attention as they eat with each bite and ask themselves, is this more rewarding, less rewarding, or the same as the last bite? And so they can kind of map it out and see where they've actually had enough. Mm. And that helps them not go over that cliff where they've overeaten. In fact, my lab just published a study on this. Uh, Veronique Taylor was the, the lead author on that. She's done a lot of great work with reinforcement learning where we have this app called Eat Right Now and we embedded this craving tool where we had people basically do a mindful eating exercise every time you know, they had a craving. And what we found 10 to 15 times of people paying attention as they overeat. I'm gonna say that again, because this blew my mind. 10 to 15 times that reward value drops below zero and they shift their behavior. Now, if we can look back on this and it makes sense because from an evolutionary perspective, we don't have 20 times to be chased by some dangerous animal to learn, oh, that's danger. <laughs> you know, We have to learn that pretty quickly. So our brains are amazingly plastic as long as we pay attention, right? That's the key ingredient. So whether it's overeating, whether it's worrying, you know, people learn pretty quickly that worrying isn't actually very rewarding as much as their brain tries to convince them that they're solving their problems or it's giving them a sense of control. It's not actually helping them control. Yeah, I was just thinking about that because I, I love the way you brought anxiety into the same pattern as well. And um, I guess something that I've certainly personally experienced and struggled with a bit. And yeah, so it does seem to it gives you, I guess, this false sense that the worrying or the thinking through everything is going to help you be prepared yeah. or, you know, fix it. And then, yeah. So where's the link? If it's not, I don't Yeah. Well, I'll jump in there because this was something that probably of all the things that I've learned, this was the one that blew my mind the most. And I have to say, I've been, I just love my job because I get to learn all this crazy cool stuff around and link, you know, put your psychology to, you know, to neuroscience to even, you know, as a clinician trying to help people. So I've had, you know, I've been very privileged, very lucky to be able to, to study these things. But I have to say the thing that was the biggest aha was seeing how, you know, these folks like uh, Thomas Borkovic and others had described anxiety as this negatively reinforced process back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I just I just never learned it until mm -hmm. I started looking it up when I actually had people saying, hey, can you, you know, anxiety is driving me to stress eat. Can you help me with that? You know, can you create a program for anxiety? So it turns out that our survival brains, you know, so these ancient habit mechanisms, they now pair with a more modern mechanism of planning for the future, right? As we develop the capacity, I don't know, sometime in the last million years, 
develop this capacity to think and plan for the future, that thinking and planning helps us survive, right? And right. so, like you're saying, you know, problem solving, uh, planning, all of this is helpful. Yet, our brains take to be able to plan. They we tend to take previous scenarios and mm -hmm. simulate future based on past experience. Yet, if there is not enough accurate information to simulate what might happen, it doesn't stop our brains from trying. And right. so we start to simulate all the worst, like, what if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? Mm -hmm. And we get stuck in these worry habit loops that instead of saying, well, let, you know, let me check the probabilities. Our brains are terrible with dealing with probabilities, right? They're just like, oh, this could happen. And then we get stuck in, oh, yeah, it might happen. Oh, it would be terrible if it happened. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we're galloping off into the future, worried about everything. Yeah. That ironically, the worrying makes survival less likely. Mm. And by that, I mean, it doesn't help us think and plan. And in fact, anxiety is, you know, it's it's anti-survival. It, it makes, it, it leads to physical problems. Anxiety itself is an emotional. When it's extended over yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would even argue that anxiety itself, there is no, there's been no shown, nobody has shown that anxiety is actually helpful. Right. I guess maybe there's a definition. I was thinking of acute yeah. stress response oh, yeah. as is helpful. Yeah, those but... are different. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. How do you define anxiety, actually? Well, the uh, if you take the dictionary definition, they talk about this feeling of worry or nervousness or une unease about an imminent event or you know something with an uncertain outcome. Okay. So anxiety tends to be a feeling, yet worry can not only be a feeling, but it can also be a behavior, worrying. We worry mm -hmm. about something. Mm -hmm. so, so especially with the worrying, worrying has, you know, it shuts down our thinking brain. It makes it harder for us to think. Uh, and also, you know, raises our blood pressure and, you know, makes us more anxious. So that's where definitionally I'm talking about that. Mm -hmm. In terms of acute stressors, you know, if they're, if we have a fight or flight response, obviously that's helpful. And also a fear response. We can learn through negative reinforcement. That's also helpful. So fear is a helpful survival strategy. Fear of the future is not because mm. we're not actually in danger Right. And if we're just afraid of the future, we're not going to actually be able to work with what might happen and plan for it so that we are less likely to be in danger right. in the future. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. So the biggest uh, habit loops around anxiety are that anxiety itself as a feeling triggers the mental behavior of worrying. So somebody mm. starts to worry and the worrying gives people that, that sense of control, generally a false sense of control, mm. and then feeds back and makes us more anxious because it doesn't solve a problem. It doesn't keep a family member safe. It doesn't do what our brain has promised that it will do. With the awareness, um, and then of course, this is where uh, meditation comes in and all your experience with that. How do you view a spectrum? Because what you were describing in terms of how you work with your your patients and clients, and um, you can just kind of in the moment become aware of something. And then what's the spectrum of that to kind of like a full-on meditation practice? And, you know, it, it seems like there's nothing magical, right, about meditation, but is it more just a, a practice part? It's a great question. And I agree. 
there's nothing magical about meditation. And in particular, I can speak from my own experience. I didn't really understand what the purpose of meditation was. I just heard, you know, being in medical school, oh, try meditating, you know, might be good for you. And, and especially these days, people learn, you know, they hear a lot of this science around, oh, meditation could help with this or that. Mm -hmm. But they don't really understand what it's there for. So I think of meditation being kind of a smaller subset of mindfulness training in general. So, you know, mm -hmm. so you can meditate to learn to train yourself, you know, to, to learn mindfulness. And mindfulness is really about understanding and, and learning our minds, seeing what's happening, seeing how we are <laughs> habitually perpetuating unhealthy habits, and also seeing where we could potentially perpetuate healthy habits. It falls more into the third step, and we can talk about that in a minute. So here, I think of mindfulness training and meditation being you know, part of how we can do that as a way to help us see these habitual patterns of our mind. So whether we're sitting down, you know, doing some formal meditation on a cushion or doing walking or whatever, it helps us provide this anchor point where we can start to see our minds in motion. You know, it makes me think of high school physics when I learned, you know, if something's um, moving at a certain velocity and something else is moving at the same velocity, they look like they're at rest relative to each other mm, because they're moving yeah. the same, as long as they're moving in the same direction. And so if our mind is constantly moving, we don't actually see that it's in motion because we're just used to it. You know, it's like, oh, that's my mind. So if we provide an anchor point where we can start to see, oh, this is my mind doing its thing, we can start to see the mind is in motion. And here, this is where this first step can be so helpful, just providing that anchor point of being curious, like, oh, am I stuck in a habit loop right now, for example? We can do that in formal meditation, watch the mental habit patterns of our minds, or we can even do that in the moment, right? It doesn't really matter. And some of the research that my lab had done 10 years ago now, where we actually found that the informal mindfulness practices were even more helpful than formal mindfulness practices mm. in helping people quit smoking. Both of them were helpful, but the informal, like in the moment practices were really helpful and they moderated decoupling of craving and smoking and all this stuff. So here I, I see meditation and mindfulness as helping us see the patterns of our mind. And I also see mindfulness that, and if you think of mindfulness as this curious awareness, right? It's awareness that's you know often described as non-judgmental. If you positively frame that, you can think of it as being curious, like not assuming we know what's happening, but really being curious, oh, what's happening? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there we can bring that curious awareness in, in that second step. And I like to make it very pragmatic. So I'll have my patients uh, just ask themselves, what am I getting from this, right? If they're worrying, they can ask themselves, what am I getting from worrying? And that helps them, you know, map out these habitual patterns, but also see that cause and effect relationship. Oh, worrying's not solving the problems. If I have a patient who's overeating, I can ask, have them ask themselves, you know, how little is enough, right? And pay attention to each bite. That brings a mindful awareness in. They can find that pleasure plateau. They can start to become disenchanted with the overeating. So there, that... Curious awareness helps people really see very, very clearly how unrewarding unhelpful habits are. It can also help them start to see how helpful some other habits are. And this mm. is where I think of this third step. I think of it as finding the BBO, the bigger, better offer. Okay. Mm. So if our brains are set up to form a reward hierarchy, you know, to prefer cake over broccoli or whatever, 
We can also help our brains see if they have a natural reward hierarchy toward different emotional states. So my lab hasn't published this yet, but we did a study with several hundred people where we just had them categorize a bunch of different emotional states like anxiety, frustration, curiosity, kindness, connection, things like that. And we had them just rank in their what, what they preferred, like which ones were more preferable than others to get a rough estimate of reward value. And we found, probably not surprisingly, that people prefer a curiosity to anxiety. Mm-hmm. They prefer kindness to disconnection or frustration and things like that. And so here that suggests that our brains have these natural preferences for things like connectedness as compared to divisiveness, which mm-hmm. is which is promising. You know, it doesn't sound like modern day where we're kind of getting right. stuck in these local energetic minima around like, oh, divisiveness and tribalism, yeah. you yeah. know, but that's just because people can't see the greater joy that comes with connection. Mm. I, oh, interesting. So yeah. could you even think of that as like disconnection and divisiveness as a bad habit? Right. Yes. Where it's like there's some immediate reward, but it's not actually helpful. Yes. It's like sugar. You know, mm-hmm, it gives us right. the sugar high and then we want more of it because to be divisive, you have to perpetuate divisiveness. And as compared to connection, when somebody tastes the joy of connection and kindness, it's a no brainer. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to convince yourself or like get on, you know, get riled up or get a bunch of likes around. It's just like, well, of course, Mm -hmm. of course. And so the nice thing about that is when somebody can actually taste that really from their own direct experience, their brain naturally prefers it. You know, we could get into the edge cases around sociopathy and things like Mm -hmm. that. But let's just say for 99.9% of us, if we really pay attention and we compare, you know, being a jerk to being nice, uh, it's really a no-brainer. In, in fact, Jake Davis wrote his entire PhD thesis on, on Buddhist ethics, suggesting that simply paying attention will help us develop and, I would say, tap into our inner ethics that our brain has already set up as compared mm-hmm. to the shoulds, you know, the Ten Commandments or the thou shalt that all the mostly dead white men came up with. Right. You know, this is really about seeing how rewarding it feels. Uh, to be kind, to be connected, to be generous. You know, in fact, even the, if you look at the graduated teachings in Buddhism, generosity is the first step. And some argue that it was, they're, they're trained that way. You know, you start with generosity because it's the easiest to see how rewarding generosity is. Mm. So I think of those as the bigger, better offers. And so for example, you know, if we're, if we're worrying, we can compare worrying to being curious about what the feelings of anxiety feel like. Curiosity feels better than worry. So we can start to step, not only step out of the worry habit loop, but also start to change our relationship to the feelings of anxiety itself. You know, if something's unpleasant, our our survival brain says, hey, make that go away as quickly as possible. And so we worry, we procrastinate, we drink, we eat, we do go on social media, we do all these things that just perpetuate the process and get us stuck in these, you know, identifications with whatever those behaviors are. But in fact, if we get curious, we can start to notice, oh, this is a physical sensation. Oh, you know, it's my head's not going to explode. I've had patients actually say, I feel like my head's going to explode. Yeah. You know, and we and we dive into that in the moment. We get curious and they see their head doesn't explode. They change their relationship to these things. They start to see that they're impermanent. Does that sound familiar, right? Buddhist psychology, impermanence. They're selfless. Uh, and that that just by seeing these things, again, awareness 
can become that bigger, better offer where we can start to see, oh, these are physical sensations. They come and go. I can be with them. I don't have to do anything to make them go away. Mm. That is a huge insight for so many people. And, and I'll even say, you know, as a scientist, I, you know, I'm easily biased because I, you know, I started meditating and beginning medical school. You know, I could be missing something, which is why we have to do these randomized controlled trials. And so, yeah. you know, we can go into it as much or as little as you'd like, but we've, you know, we've done a bunch of clinical studies. In fact, we just published a study. So we developed this Unwinding Anxiety app to train people in these three steps. Yeah, yeah. What have you found? And we we started with people, with people as in doctors, anxious physicians, because I can speak from my own experience. One, we don't learn good coping mechanisms in medical school. Mm -hmm. And two, we do learn to be martyrs. You know, it's like, don't take care of yourself because you could be spending that time saving lives. You know, it's mm -hmm. very dramatic. Yet the irony is we can't save anybody's life if we're burnt out and we can't even help them in, in our outpatient clinic if, if, they're, if we're burnt out. So we did the study of the anxious physicians. It was just a small single arm trial. We wanted to see if we could get an effect. Okay, we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. Mm. So that was an eye opener for us. We also got a 50% reduction in certain aspects of burnout, like being callous toward patients. Mm. So that was enough to get NIH funding. We did a randomized controlled trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder. And here, 67% reduction in anxiety. Wow. And how long is the program? In the physician study, we looked three months out. Mm -hmm. And then in the generalized anxiety disorder study, we looked two months out. So the modules, there are four core weeks, and then there okay. are a bunch of theme weeks. So people can get basically you know, about six months of training if they want to go straight on. But basically, we we wanted to see, you know, two months out is a pretty decent time point. Uh, and here we're seeing, you know, compared to usual care, and, you know, this is where medications come in, you know, one in five patients and all of that. Right. Not great. You know, usual care, we got about a 14% reduction in anxiety. So something was moving in the right direction, which is good. But 14 versus 67%. Amazing. Yeah. 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 And so we could even calculate the number needed to treat. So with medications 5.2 in this study... 1.6. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And were any of those, uh, the folks in the study also on meds or I guess you probably couldn't control for that? Yeah. So the nice thing was because it was a randomized controlled trial, the, in both groups got usual care that any effective medication would be controlled by the randomization. Right. I don't remember us looking carefully at that to see if there were any, well, we might've looked uh, to see if there was any significant difference between the groups in terms of medications, we would have noted that. But the fact that I don't remember that suggests that there probably wasn't a, a right, difference. Right. And that, it, yeah, I'm just thinking you were saying earlier um, with using anti-anxiety medications, is that pretty much the only, that's kind of the standard treatment from the medical and psychiatric community, right? There aren't these really behavioral um, methods. Well, some people use cognitive behavioral therapy. That's mm -hmm. kind of the gold standard in general across the board for anything. So that you know, CBT is gold standard. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's, and I actually learned CBT in, in residency. The problem there is scalability. So we okay. have a huge shortage of healthcare providers uh, in the U.S. And so referring somebody for CBT, making sure that they take that person's insurance, that the person can go to the 12 or 16 sessions or however many sessions are set up, et cetera, 
it's it can be really challenging. So I would say just from an access standpoint, that can be challenging. That's also why we created an app-based mindfulness training program because you know, like most people have smartphones. So I would say there are other treatments out there like cognitive behavioral therapy. They're not always accessible and right. unfortunately not all therapists are created equal. You know, some therapists are going to be better than others. So it folks tend to have to find a good fit. Um, right. for a therapist. So we were looking from a public health perspective, like how could we move the needle at a population level? Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. where I think digital therapeutics can provide a really good, uh, say, treatment for these types of things because anybody can use an app. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what do you think are next steps, um, either getting this more widely available or, yeah, the frontiers of this kind of habit work? Yeah, it's a good question. So here I would say there are a number of things. So one, you know, there are a bunch of meditation apps out there for people. And so I think it's important for clinicians as well as consumers to really be able to differentiate, you know, just an app for meditation of which there are a gazillion versus something that, that is really designed and developed for clinical use, uh, right. whether it's mild to moderate to severe anxiety. So I think I just read that it was only 19% of, of any app that's designed for depression or anxiety had the uh, involvement of a clinician at all, you know? And so it's, it's, you know, when you look at it, I think the, you know, with the, the saying uh, buyer beware, you know, folks just need to be, know what they are, what they're exploring. So here, the future is I would love to see a number of digital therapeutics be developed that are based on psychological mechanism. Mm -hmm. that involve clinician and ideally end user uh, experience to really help them uh, make sure that they are most accessible and most helpful for, for folks. And then most importantly, for there to be randomized control trials to show that whether they actually work or not. So that's, you know, those are, those trials tend to be very expensive. They take a long time. And that's very different than a company saying, hey, I'm going to develop an app and, you know, and market it. Um, right, right. So I think that's important where, you know, we have evidence-based digital therapeutics come down the road. And I think the other thing that we can start to look into is how to personalize things. Mm -hmm. For example, my lab uh, just did a study. We haven't published this yet, but did a study where we could start to explore baseline psychological phenotypic characteristics of people to see which ones are going to benefit most or least from a digital therapeutic. I won't go into the details because it's still under review, but the it, the data suggests that we can, with as few as, you know, 19 questions, you know, so like three minutes, uh, we might be able to determine somebody's baseline psychological phenotype and personalize or sort wow. them into, you know, suggesting, hey, you, you, know, you try this treatment versus you tried this treatment. So I think that's coming down the road. The more we understand the mechanisms to be able to ask the right questions, to be able to uh, get good baseline psychological phenotypes that really differentiate folks. And I think that's a really exciting development because you know, from a genotypic standpoint, medicine's been trying to do this just in the realm of psychiatry for years. You know, yeah. like what, what medications- Yeah, medicine. Yeah. And that's, you know, there have been some successes, but nothing that's been able to be rolled out at a large scale. You know, I don't have a, in my clinic, 
I don't have folks getting, you know, their whole genome sequenced to figure out, you know, right. what medications they might benefit from. Down the road, I think we'll see cost-effective versions probably won't need your whole genome to be sequenced for an antidepressant medication, but we you get the idea. Here, I think if we are very savvy about what the psychological mechanisms are, we can zoom in and you can ask, you know, having somebody fill out a, a web-based questionnaire that gets you know, cloud computed and beamed to the electronic medical record, that's basically, you know, pennies or a penny, you know, it's, it's basically no cost and instant results that, you know, by the time somebody goes from the waiting room into seeing their clinician for the first time, the clinician could already have those results. Yeah. So I think there are ways to take the same approaches where we don't have to be as tech heavy and, you know, genetics focused, uh, we can really look at at psychology and learn a lot from that as a way to personalize medicine. So I think that's a really exciting uh, field to be exploring as well. Yeah, that is super exciting. Um, So you have three apps now that are available based on this, um, this approach? We do. So we have one called Craving to Quit for smoking. uh, And then we've got one for eating for overeating and emotional eating called Eat Right Now, uh, and then one for anxiety called Unwinding Anxiety. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, in fact, there's another one that just came out that's kind of an overview, like helps people understand how their mind works, called just called Unwinding uh, by oh. Sharecare, I think. Yeah. Great. Are there specific um, outcomes that are hoped for in that one, or is that more just educational? That one's more educational. Mm-hmm. So we haven't done any clinical studies to look at it specifically, but it has, for example, helps people understand habit loops around procrastination. So there's a mini course on procrastination. Mm -hmm. So we haven't, I I don't even know what outcomes I'd look at for procrastination. (laughs) (laughs) I could make a joke about I've put that one on, that study off. But (laughs) anyway, so that's the idea is like we have a brain 101 mini course where people can learn how their brains work. We have a procrastination one. We have one on anger, one on kindness. Mm, uh, you know, nice. so just the general overview of helping people kind of get a sense for how their brain works, because that can be a real nice stepping stone for these other, you know, if somebody figures out, oh, you know, I actually have pretty moderate to severe anxiety here, you know, maybe I, this unwinding anxiety program would be more helpful. But Everybody benefits from understanding how their brain works. I really appreciate all that you've done in terms of public education and science communication around all of these topics. Um, I think it's so important. Do you have any tips or insights or reflections um, for you know researchers and mm. how to translate this kind of work in such an accessible way as you've done? Yeah, it's a great question. So here I would say... Well, curiosity is key, but it's kind of key for everything. So that's a generic answer. But I would say being curious about how best something lands. So for example, in my clinic, I could tell my patients to do something or I could get really curious and see how the way I explain something lands with them. Mm 
And I could see if they actually can digest that, take that home, and, and it shifts how they see their minds. So I do a lot of kind of pilot testing with just languaging of things. And it started in my clinic. And then even, you know, I think any researcher that gives talks or, you know, gives a lab meeting or, or just has a conversation with somebody else, it can be really helpful to kind of workshop that and iterate, like, what am I trying to say? And is the way I'm saying it the best way to say it? Mm-hmm. As compared to, it's kind of like, you know, if somebody doesn't understand what we're saying, there's this habit to just say it again, but louder, you <laughs> right. know, which probably isn't that helpful, but that that's where we're kind of stuck in. Well, they didn't understand what I was going to say, what I was saying. So it must be their problem. And I'm just going to say it again here to, you know, it's, it's very humbling. I'd have to say, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. what I, you know, we could go, oh, what I said didn't, you know, they didn't get it. Oh, that's their problem. I'm going to say it again. Or I could go, oh, that didn't work. What can I learn from that? And I can be curious and then ask them, well, what what didn't land well? Or what did you understand? What didn't you understand? And that helps me workshop the language to really explain it in a way that they're going to get. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether I can say it with some you know, multisyllabic words or mm-hmm. you know with some jargon. It really matters, can I communicate the concept to somebody else so that they can learn from it? That's that's our job as scientists, is not just to do the science for science sake. That's part of it. It's really fun to do that. But also to be able to communicate this so that people can benefit from the results and the findings that yeah. we have. If people can't benefit from them, you know, we're probably wasting most, if not all, of our time. Yeah. So here I would say humility, curiosity, uh, and a lot of conversations, really just, you know, having conversations and listening to how we say something to see if there is a is a simpler way to say it. For, for me, I find it very helpful to find analogies that fit, you know, it's kind of like explaining positive and negative reinforcement, you know, I'm terrible at math. And so I could look at the Rascola Wagner model and, and say, wow, that looks kind of Latinish to me, you know, mm-hmm. and Greek, there's a lot of Greek in there. So I could look at that or I could say, well, what is this trying to convey? And then, you know, explain it through the, the, the new bakery analogy. And so that is a pragmatic example of how Rascola and Wagner modeling works. And so that example can help people under, hopefully help people understand it, certainly helps me understand it and convey those concepts without all of the jargon, without all, you know, worrying about, oh, there's this error term and what's the alpha mean and, and all of that stuff. At yeah. the end of the day, my brain pays attention. Does it like cake or not? You know, and, right. and we get the idea. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I really appreciate um, all of your efforts in all of this and on and that front, too. I wish this were more part of scientific training. Mm. As you and I both know, it's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. It would be great if there were courses on, yeah. you know, conveying scientific concepts, uh, courses on speaking to media, you know, understanding mm-hmm. kind of what what's their what are they trying to get from having mm-hmm. an interview with a scientist so that we don't inadvertently, you know, fall into a miscommunication trap where, right. you know, they're looking for a soundbite and, you know, we, we get angry because they take something out of context when in fact it's not their fault that, you know, they're just trying to get a headline, yep. you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Well, I know we're coming up on our time. Um, so I want to thank you so much for spending all this time with us and for all your work. Do you have any kind of big picture take-homes or anything that you want to share that we haven't touched on? 
Well, the one thing I would say we touched on it a little bit is with these bigger, better offers is just really, I would say for me right now, just emphasizing how important the power of kindness and connection are. You know, mm -hmm. I, I feel like today it is so critical that we, you know, even in having conversations with folks that might have different views than we do, uh, really bringing that curiosity in and really trying to understand, you know, what the conditions are that lead to them having that, that viewpoint. And same for us, what, what are the conditions that lead me to having a certain viewpoint really can be helpful for developing connection and seeing, <laughs> I say this because it seems ridiculous when I say it, but remembering that we're all human, you know, we're all in this together and it feels like we're doing all this infighting as mm. humans when we could all be banding together to, you know, to help all of us live better lives and help really help our planet not get destroyed. Yet we're, yeah. we're kind of all these shiny objects around greed and anger and all this stuff are really keeping us from from banding together to do that. So I just want to highlight how critical it is for all of us to pay attention to how rewarding it is to be kind, even to folks we might not, not agree with. To, you know, it's, it's really about, it all comes back to being human. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful, wonderful place to leave it. Deep gratitude to you for all of your work. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This season of Mind and Life is supported by the Academy for the Love of Learning, dedicated to awakening the natural love of learning in people of all ages. Episodes are edited and produced by me and Phil Walker, and music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>